0: All right. Well, let's. Uh, we we have so much to catch up on. We never will. It's Zeno's course. Um, but um, okay. So uh, since Jared isn't here, we can talk about Pascal, right? So let's talk about Pascal for a little while. What we're going to do is is we're going to have a. Um, guess we're gonna we're gonna compartmentalize this class. So we'll talk about. Um, Pascal, for a little while, then we'll talk a little bit more about Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. And then we will talk about game theory. And you've all read Descartes, right? Um, so, probably what we'll do, we may start talking about Descartes today. How many of you are reading Descartes for the first time? Uh, what'd you think? <laughs> so, you don't exist? You didn't think, and therefore you don't exist? Abby. Why? His logic just was so, it was so hard to differentiate, it actually made sense just from what was emotional and what you wanted to needed to make sense. So what did, you mean in, in Descartes? So what did you want and need to make sense?
1: I mean, even his very basic, I think that where I am, I'm so excited to finally read his justification of that,
0: but it didn't actually... Well, it's, it's supposed to be self-justifying. Um, the very fact that you wanted to read it meant that you felt it had power by itself, right? But
1: you have to have some logic. Like, that's not just a given. If it was there, you be no need to say it. Like, it has to be some kind of logic to make
0: that conclusion. Huh. Okay. Well, when we do Neuromancer, so what, just to tell you what we're... (laughs) When Caro does her class presentation on Neuromancer... Yes? Okay, good. Um, Jared, did you finish your paper? So we can actually talk about Pascal. Yeah. Good. Um, all right, when we do Neuromancer, what you will see is that there's a character, the Dixie Flatline. Do you remember
1: him? Yeah. Oh my God, that blew my mind.
0: Yeah, okay. Who will blow your mind? Yeah. And you won't know whether you exist after he blows your mind because your mind will be blown and you may not have a mind, as Dan Quayle said. Yeah. Do people know about Dan Quayle, ex vice president of the United States? Do you know who he is? Yeah. You don't memorize the vice presidents? Yeah, he's the potato guy with an e oh. potato. So one of his other famous things. Do you guys know about the United Negro College Fund?
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: So their slogan was "A mind is a terrible thing to waste," and um, Quayle was addressing. It was either the NAACP or it might have been um, Howard University or something. But he wanted to show his his. Um, um, CHOPS, so he said, yes, and I've always been a supporter of the United Negro College Fund. Um, <clears throat> what a waste it is to have a mind, or not to have a mind at all. How true that is. Um, so that's how he botched a mind is a terrible thing to waste. But he was thinking of Descartes, I think. That is, because if you don't have a mind at all, then do you exist, and can you know it? Um, so we will, um, but these are issues that will come up, as you'll see, in Lem's story. Um, I, sent it, I sent you the original publication in English, um, which appeared in The New Yorker. And it's on the syllabus. It's under the title, non Serviam," I shall not serve, which is what Satan um, made a mistake by saying to God, um, and thereby got thrown into hell. Um, The New Yorker version, the title of the New Yorker version is just experiment. And it's an experiment in artificial intelligence, as you'll see. Um, The question of artificial intelligence and the question of um, the Turing test, which we talked about a little bit before and we'll talk about some more, is a question about um, what it means to think that you're thinking. Um, what it means to have experience of your own thought, what that very question of what's given um, as the given might be. So that's um, an issue. We'll, we'll talk about Descartes and um, Lem together next class and then um, talk more about these issues um, when we get to Neuromancer. Okay, Pascal, um, how many of you became Jansenists? So yeah. you did? Oh, yeah. All right. Um,
1: yeah, so what are you doing here? Uh,
0: like 11.35. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, how many of you changed your lives in any way after reading about the wager? Um, how many of you didn't change your I lives? I I
2: might not believe in God after writing my argument. I think I actually convinced myself the opposite of what Pascal intended upon writing my argument.
0: Really? Okay, did other people have that experience of deciding that to go exactly in the other direction to do the converse of the argument? Okay, say, um, we'll go one, two, three. Why?
2: I, well, I still don't know if that's... I still need to, to logic through it a little more and figure out if that's really what I do believe. But I realized that the way I understood transcendence and infinity um, doesn't really make any sense. That I understood it through... Because of certain things I see around me, there must be, but my whole argument was about, was agreeing with Pascal's point that it's infinitely beyond our comprehension to understand God in any way. Mm-hmm. And so, the way I thought I understood it can't be true, because if it is so, and it is transcendent and infinite, then I can't understand it through the senses I thought I did.
0: Okay, so one thing that he does is he asks you to think, um, to, to recur to something that's been familiar in this class um, from the start, not of a circle whose center is everywhere and circumference is nowhere, but what's the similar thing that Pascal brings up? A point that is everywhere at once. Do you remember that? That's not in the wager part, but it is in the reading that you did. Um, so do you remember his argument for there being a point that could be everywhere simultaneously? Anyone? Okay, it's if it moves at infinite speed, then it could um, refresh all of space or all of whatever space it's moving within. And at any moment, you would find it there because if it's moving at infinite speed, um, it will be everywhere at once. Um, And that, I think that's worth thinking about whether that's true or not. It's also worth thinking about that it turns out it can't be true. Um, but for physical reasons, not for, for reasons having to do with physics, not for reasons having to do with conceptual analysis. Um, the reasons have, having to do with physics are that the. Do people know about this? The constancy of the speed of light? Um, yeah. Is this. If I say the constancy Some of the speed somewhat. of light. Sorry? Somewhat. Somewhat. Um, okay. Is this completely Greek to anyone that the speed of light is constant? Okay. Is it Latin to anyone? Mm -hmm. Romanian? (laughs) French? Esperanto, maybe? We're getting there. You know, you would sort of understand, but sort of not if it were Esperanto. Um, Is it perfectly lucid to to everyone then? except Yeah. I get it. You get it.
3: Yeah. The
0: joke or the constancy of the speed of light? The constancy. Okay. So, (laughs) good. Um, The constancy of the speed of light is for those of you who don't know it um, is that if you're in an airplane that's let's say has a airspeed, do you guys need to worry about airspeed versus ground speed? We did this a little bit when we were talking about orbits, but is this an issue for you? Let's do it as ground speed. We intuitively think in terms of ground speed, but that's just wrong. It's one of the things, one of the first things you have to stop thinking about if you go into aeronautics. Um, if, you, if you ever wondered why airplanes take off into the wind, is the, has, have you ever wondered, like, doesn't that seem stupid? Shouldn't they be going with the wind so they would go faster? No. They have
3: to it's the
2: airspeed.
0: Yeah, so that's yeah. the airspeed. Um, because if you take off into the wind, your airspeed is greater because the wind is coming at you at 30 miles an hour and you're going into the wind at 100 miles an hour. So your airspeed is 130 miles an hour. Whereas if you go with the wind, which is the way you want to ride your bike, with the wind at your back, um, your airspeed, if you're a plane going 100 miles an hour and there's a wind at your back at 30 miles an hour, your airspeed is only, uh, is only 70 miles an hour. So that's why you always want to take off into the wind because that's increased airspeed.
2: Yeah. Say again. It's the relation. See, it's, it's like probability. To the
0: wind. Okay, so if you're an airplane, you want to be moving as fast as you can through the air because if you move too slowly, you'll fall and die.
1: Oh, okay. So, like, you need more power. Like, so you're sort saying like, that, like, because, okay, so if I'm, if I'm on my bike and I'm going against the wind, I'm, I have to use more energy to go through the same like Right. So I'm sort, I'm, and I am using, I mean, like a, like a car crash. you're still, like, you're, it's, like, the same as the speed of, like, double that. So it's sort of like that you're using... So it's not like you're going really... Like, you're technically going fast, which is helping you stay up, but you're not actually going faster, like, let's time it. Like,
0: okay, you're in, here faster. Okay, so does everyone get that now? Sorry. Yeah, yeah. What?
1: Like, how it's different on a bike than...
0: Because on a bike, what you're doing is you are moving... Airplanes can go very fast, even on the ground. So the, so the ground speed of an airplane, how fast its wheels can move on the runway, is a trivial issue. They can move really fast. Um, what keeps an airplane up is how fast it's going through the air. If an airplane goes too slow, it falls. Um, what keeps it up is that the faster it's moving through the air, the greater mm-hmm. the differential because of the wing shape, the greater the differential between the amount of air under the wing, and the amount of air over the wing, and it's air pressure under the wing that's keeping the airplane up. Yeah.
2: But can't some planes fly upside down?
0: Not for long. And they have to... They have to. It's a yawn roll thing. No, not for long. They can, but not for long. Yeah.
1: So, wait. So, like, the, what I was saying about fast, like, okay, so what I mean is, is technically you're going faster, but, like, if, if you were to time how fast you got to India, versus, like... If, if the, the problem is, is like that, if you're going with the wind, you would not be spending enough energy, or going fast enough to stay in the air. Right. Not that you go faster to like yeah. toward India. Like, right. Like, exactly.
0: Time-wise. Yeah, you would go faster on the ground, but not. But you wouldn't. But the air. You wouldn't be able to get up. Right. Into the air.
1: So, but you wouldn't like say you could somehow um, go like fast enough so that you would still be on like in the wind. You wouldn't go fast.
0: Doing the opposite. Doing okay, so here, this will I'm help. Sorry. No, this will help. Airplanes always take off and they also always land into the wind. Um, that's why there are wind socks in airports so that you can see which way the wind is blowing and you don't have to be a weatherman to do it, which, do you get that joke? Good. All right, California. But you should get it at Brandeis also. Um, do you know what the weather underground was? Okay, and the reason they were called the Weather Underground is they were originally called the Weathermen, and the reason they were called the Weathermen was their slogan was "You don't need to be a weatherman to know which way the wind is blowing." So now you've learned some history, yeah. The
3: Wikipedia page for Brandeis um, lists uh, <laughs> notable criminals from Brandeis. Yeah.
4: Power. Yeah. 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 No, she wasn't a criminal, was Angela Davis. She was wanted. Wanted, yes. In 1970. Yeah. The, the bank robbery. She do with that one, though. Yeah. She wasn't even here, which is yeah. quite funny. Yeah. That lawyer looked stupid <laughs> on the Yeah.
0: Stanley Bond also
4: came
0: here? So aren't you interested how we got from the speed of light to this question? I don't remember. OK, so, ba- so the idea, all right, so may- I don't know if this will help, but has any of you ever gone skydiving? No. OK, the way parachutes work, um, generally, not always, but generally, is if you look at a parachute, what you will see is that there are a couple of panels missing from the front. And what that means is that when a parachute is falling, it's, it's, fall, it's, it's got forward motion because there's, uh, it's buoyed up more behind than in the front. And that means that parachutes generally have a wind speed. They're moving through the air at about 15 miles an hour. Um, parachutes don't go straight down with respect to the air, but they're actually moving through the air. If you saw the parachute um, moving through, th- no, we'll do it a different way. Do you know what a lap pool is? Yeah. yeah. So a lap pool is water is streaming at you, and you swim against it, or it's like a treadmill. But it's but in this case, it's water. So water is streaming at you. You swim against it. Um, it 's like a, the, the, the swimming pool version of a treadmill. You can have a very small pool and you can swim for miles because you 're swimming against a current which is swimming the, which is going the other way. If you look at the side of the pool you won 't be moving. You can put a TV right there and watch it as you do your side stroke um, and you can swim for miles against water streaming at you um, watching TV. Not that many people do that, but you could. Um, so your water speed is going to be whatever the water coming at you is, but your ground speed, your TV speed, your side of the pool speed is gonna be zero. Still, you will have done a lot of work because you're going against water and you're measuring your speed against the water rather than against the land. So same with an airplane. It what count, What lifts an airplane is how fast it is cutting through air. The faster air is coming towards it, the more the speed of how fast it's cutting through air is coming from the air, um, as well as from its own forward motion, there's air coming towards it. Um, When planes take off, they take off into the wind. If you go to California, because prevailing winds winds are westward, it takes something like an hour longer to go to California than to come from California. Um, but your airspeed is the same both directions. You're going something like, let's say, 500 miles an hour um, airspeed, no matter which way you're going, but because the jet stream is pushing back at, at 45 miles an hour, up to 90 miles an hour, it takes you longer. So even though you're going through the air at 500 miles an hour, if you go to California, you're only going against the ground at 410 miles an hour. If you're coming from California to... Um, Boston. Then you're going through the air at 500 miles an hour, but you're going against the ground at 590 miles an hour. Okay, so does that is that relatively straightforward? Okay, so if you get into an airplane and the airplane is going, let us say, at a ground speed of um, 400 miles an hour, and you are a major league fastball pitcher, one of the best in the world, so you can pitch a baseball at 100 miles an hour. You're that good. And the plane is empty, and you just see, and, and there's a catcher at the other end of the plane. It's a 60-foot, 6-inch long plane. There's a catcher at the other end, and you, the great pitcher, need to limber up, so you start smoking fastballs down the length of the fuselage in the plane. Okay? You still with me?
2: So we're talking about how we can't go the speed of light because if we were able to walk forward, we'd
0: go longer. No. Well, yes, we are, actually, you're right. So, so you smoke the ball, so the plane is flying this way at 900 miles, at, at, sorry, 400 miles an hour, and you are in the plane going the same way, and you throw the ball at 100 miles an hour in the same direction that the plane is going at 400 miles an hour. How fast is the ball going then? Measured in what's called the same inertial frame as the plane. That is, how fast is, if the plane's going 400 miles an hour, you throw the ball 100 miles an hour, how fast is the ball going? 500. 500. If you're in a plane and you drop your bag of peanuts and the plane is going 400 miles an hour and you drop your bag of peanuts by accident, um, how fast is the bag of peanuts and the peanut going as it falls? 400 400 miles an hour. Yeah.
2: no, no. it, it happens,
0: hits the ground. I mean, it's still so 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 going 400 know. miles an hour. Oh, presumably air resistance is No, so. no, in the plane. The plane oh, is no. sealed. Oh, okay. I thought you meant you dropped it out of the like, plane. No, <laughs> no, no, no. You drop it in the plane because the jerk in front of you leans back without warning you. So you just drop the peanuts. They fall all over your lap. They're going for, Everything's going 400 miles an hour. Okay, you smoke the ball at 100 miles an hour, it's going 500 miles an hour. Go to the other, the catcher who decides that she's going to show you that she's even faster than you throws the ball back at you at 100 miles an hour. Now how fast is the ball going? 300. 300. okay, good. Now you're in a spaceship going 100,000 miles a second, which is fast. Let's let's face it, it's fast. You're going 100,000 miles a second. Uh, It takes you two seconds to get to the moon. Um and you are a science fiction bionic pitcher, so you can actually smoke balls at ten thousand miles a second um, so you 're in the spaceship. no, you can smoke balls at one hundred thousand miles a second you 're as fast as a spaceship is itself, the way some soccer players can kick balls sixty miles an hour so you are or the way baseball players can throw balls as fast as speeding cars so there you are in a spaceship going 100,000 miles a second, and you throw a ball at 100,000 miles a second in the same direction that the spaceship is going. It's not
2: going to be in the frame of the spaceship for very
0: long. It's a very long spaceship.
2: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
0: How fast is that ball going? 200. 200. Yeah.
3: Speed of
0: light. Sorry? The speed of light, could... No, actually, not even not even close. Uh, not even not you remotely to close to the speed of light. Um, Probably, I mean, I'm not going to do the calculation, but probably something like by, by the time you get to relativistic speeds, the difference is going to be pretty small. You're going to notice it logarithmically. So the point is if you're in a spaceship and you throw a ball in the same um, direction that the spaceship itself is going at 100,000 miles an hour and the spaceship is going 100,000 miles an hour, turns out you can't add velocities. Because nothing will go faster than 186—I mean, um, per second—nothing will go faster than 186,000 miles per second. So if you throw the ball at 100,000 miles per second in a spaceship going in the same direction at 100,000 miles per second, it'll probably go at about 140,000 miles per second. That is 100,000 plus 100,000. Adding those velocities will only get you up to about
2: 140,000. Yeah. Wasn't Einstein's theory that it's because time slows down within yes. space? Yes. Yeah.
0: Yes, yeah, Lorentz transformation. It's, um, uh, what is it? Um, velocity is a squared plus, oh shit. No, I thought it
3: was like length
0: a- times. No, no, you can add velocities and put 1 over c squared. Um, over 1, what is it? Over, over 1 minus. Oh, I can't remember it now. What is it? 1 minus b squared over c squared. One minus b squared, over c squared. I don't think that's exactly right. No, because you need the A, right? You need the initial velocity. Oh, the Lorentz transformation is, yeah. But the initial velocity. So if you're adding two velocities, I think it's um, A plus B times um, 1 over um, C, um, C squared minus A times B. I think that's what it is. So if A and B are high, they start approaching C squared, And then, or, sorry, I got the denominator and the numerator messed up. But they start approaching C squared, and that that starts canceling out all the addition of the velocity. Um, But you don't need to know that part. All you need to know is that there's a limit to how fast something can go. And even if you try to add velocities, move very fast, and then move very fast off the thing you're moving very fast in, velocities will only go up to a certain limit, and they'll approach that limit but never get to it. Um, And that is the constancy of the speed of light. And what that means is that if someone is coming at you in a train that's going the speed of light, and they blink a light at you to tell you to get out of the way because they're coming at you really fast, you won't see that light any faster than you will see the front of the train. And even though they're blinking it, they're moving at you, towards you at the speed of light, and they're blinking the light, the light doesn't get there any faster than they see the light leaving them at the speed of light, but you don't see the light coming towards you any faster than the front of the train is coming towards you.
3: Um, it's not exactly analogous, but it's sort of similar to the way that you get a you get a shockwave with a sonic boom, Yeah. Except that you can't actually go faster than the, the speed of light. You yeah, you can't go faster than the speed of sound.
0: Yeah. So you can never you can never outrun nothing can outrun the speed of light. Even if it starts off at the speed of light and leaves where it is then at any velocity beyond that it's still going to be trapped at the speed of light. So how can this be, you ask? It screws up time. What, the only way that, that something has to give and what gives is not velocity, but time. Velocity stays the same. The meaning of time changes. Yeah.
4: You brought it up earlier. Did you know what was on the
0: board behind you? Oh, my God. Yes. No, the look at that.
4: One.
0: Look at that. Everything comes together <laughs> just before Election Day. Did Cloud you see Everest. the last...
4: Hester, yeah. Uh, Joyce Handler's History of Theater class. We wrote a documentary play about Susan Saxon and Kathy Power. Did you see it? No. We're redoing it this February. Joyce Impact in Schwartz Auditorium, the eighth, ninth, and tenth. I'm directing. All right. I'm playing Susan Sox. So Everyone, take
0: Susan. it down. Say it again. Eighth, ninth, and tenth uh, of February. February
4: eighth, ninth, and tenth in Schwartz Auditorium at eight p.m. Um, eight p.m. and two p.m a documentary drama about some of Brandeis's greatest. Uh, they're actually very smart. I have Kathy Powered Pictures on my phone as well. Ooh. We interviewed her. Um, but I'm directing it, and it was really, really good last semester, but now we're getting a full-scale, non-staged reading cool. uh, production of it, and it will be
0: awesome. Cool. Have you talked to Susan States about any of this?
4: Susan Sachs does not talk to anybody. No,
0: Susan States. She was a professor of English here. She retired a few years ago, but she's around. And she was ca- she was interviewed by the F- FBI. I think it was by Kathy Powers, although it might have been about booty We uh,
4: we interviewed Barry Elkin, who was the student union president at the time. Kathy Power came to class. Students actually wow. not talk yeah, to anybody. Yeah. But we did meet with Nancy Gertner, who was her lawyer, and they're still friends. Um, Professor Cohen, Gordy Feldman, um, another guy who was a student here, a couple more people we. Interviewed. And then we also use the FBI archives. Cool. Um, and that's all here. All those archives are in the library, and it's very interesting reading the FBI documents because then you'll see the paper, and there'll just be certain lines that someone just took a black pen and just crossed yeah. out, and yeah. you cannot read them. Yeah,
0: whatsoever. they do. They do that. Information is sort of free and sort of not. Um, all right, back to the speed of light. Um. So the point is, you don't have to, it's very counterintuitive. Um, Light does not, you can't go faster than light. And even if you're going as fast as light, if you shine a flashlight ahead of you and someone is watching you pass them at the speed of light and watching you turn on a flashlight as you pass them at the speed of light, they won't see the flashlight leaving where you are they'll see you, this is what you're saying as being like a sonic boom, you'll, you'll be going at the speed of light and you'll turn on your flashlight and what they will see is the light not leaving your flashlight because you'll be going the same speed as it. Um, if, they saw, if you were going at the speed of sound and you um, shot a supersonic bullet, they would see it leaving at the speed of sound. Um, and they would see it as at twice the speed of sound and leaving your gun at the speed of, of sound. But if you turn if you shoot a ray gun while you're going the speed of light they won't see any ray leaving your ray gun Um, you however will see it leaving your ray gun how can this be because they will see time stop for you and you you will see time stop for them so only by totally messing with time can the speed of light be the speed limit in the universe? Or as they used to say, 186,000 miles per second, it's not only a good idea, it's the law. (laughs) Um, So what that means is that Pascal is wrong. A point cannot move at infinite speed. It also means that we're really lucky because in our universe with all the um, huge physical forces that occur here, um, there would be no limit to how fast um, meteors, meteorites, rocks, asteroids, stars, planets, um, to the speed they would be whipped into. Um, They could be whipped into infinite speeds um, in a finite amount of time. You could, with gravity and with the energy of the universe, whip matter into an infinite speed. And if matter were moving at infinite speed, some of it would hit us and kill us, like now. Like if there were matter moving at infinite speed, there could be a tiny rock in Alpha Centauri. We're dead. That fast. Actually much faster than that. Um, So the constancy of the speed of light, the fact that the speed of light is a speed limit, the fact that there isn't infinite velocity and can't be infinite velocity, the fact that there actually is an absolute finite limit to velocity in our universe is the only thing that enables us to exist. If there were infinite velocity, we would not exist. Um, so, the, it, so, so it's important. Um, all right. So that's one way that Pascal is talking about infinity. But what about the wager? How is he working out the, um, whether it's a good bet or not to bet
3: on
2: God?
0: Yeah, so what's the cost-benefit analysis? Joy, you were going to speak second.
1: Back to like all 20 minutes ago ish, or wait, if
0: we're no, going to speed of light, it would be just now.
1: Yeah, whoa, I was just re- uh, putting my hand up to the fact like that it didn't, that the wager made me also feel less inclined toward God. Um, okay, it was why? Because um, because it was, it was a pretty like con- somewhat convincing argument, but I like the most convincing argument I'd thus far, so it made me like, oh, okay, <laughs> there isn't really an argument, but it's, it reminds me of, like, I, before, like, um, a year ago, I was sort of with the Bocanonist kind of argument, which is a monogamous, like, yeah. oh, well, it's better to, like, believe in something even if it's, like, totally silly, Yeah. Um, and, uh, but then it was Bocanon. just not enough of an impetus to, like, keep me doing that, so I was like, well, <laughs> this would be an impetus, but it's not, like... It's
0: not a very convincing uh, argument. Okay. Um, and someone else's hand was up. No? I thought we had a... All right. What is the cost-benefit analysis? Yeah. Um, well it says that uh, if God
4: doesn't exist and you don't believe
1: in him, then that's not really... That doesn't like, fit you in any way. Well, it could. Or, like, it's just not that You get that more place. sex, more drugs, and more rock and roll. But he says that's, that's not important. Those are really like, shallow. So yeah, and if God doesn't exist, and if God doesn't exist, do believe in him, then it's actually a good thing because you're a Christian and that means you have more life. Yeah. Um, and if God does exist and you don't believe in him, obviously you're going to go to hell and your life will have no meaning your life. And if you do believe in God, and they he does exist, then you have the life and go to heaven. So it's obviously the best um, choice.
0: Okay, so put it put it numerically, Amanda.
4: In terms of not believing and then God existing, that's still up to debate for many people. You know, there there are people who have read it and looked at it and say, oh, you lose nothing, because he does flat out say that. So the consensus consensus on what that actually means is still undetermined. A lot, you know, there are a lot who say, oh, it means you go to hell, but then there are just as many who say, oh, it means you lose absolutely nothing. So there is no benefit to believing, then it's just you believe. What do you do? Good for you. You've got happiness, but you didn't believe any exists. You lose nothing. Mm-hmm. What's the
0: point? Okay, now those are, in a sense, those are side bets for Pascal. That is, that what he's, there are two things that he's saying. One is he's making um, a probabilistic argument, an argument based on probability. And the other thing that he's doing is squaring it with a much more traditional moral argument. So the traditional moral argument is whether God exists or not, people who um, who believe are happier, um, which may be true. Um, I think there's actually a little bit of evidence that, that, that that's true. Um, it may be that happier people believe, but there's some, there's some evidence for some correlation or association between belief and happiness. Um, and also that people who believe um, are more likely to... Um, enjoy doing what's morally right. That is, that doing what's morally right actually becomes a pleasure once you get a sense of it being morally right. Um, and that, so, so that even without the argument, based on the cost benefits of reward and punishment, um, even if you don't make that argument, you can make a kind of psychological therapeutic argument that believing in God makes people happier than not believing in God, um, living like a person who believes in God, and you know, um, going to bed early and waking up early and running every morning, and um, you know, just doing it—living um, your life like a Nike ad and not like a Sky Vodka ad—is um, actually happier. Um, Sky Vodka looks happier, but actually, Nike is in the long run happier. Yeah, George. Oh, is your hand not up? Sorry, Carol. Oh,
1: um, great. Right. Uh, same, same color. Um, like, belief means you believe in, like, the Catholic dance, and it's Like, you have to be a Christian. Yeah. And so, the only alternative to being a Christian is, like, being a non-believer, and that involves like, atheists and agnostics and Jews and, like... Yeah, and
2: Muslims yeah, and... Yeah, and, so like, and
1: So he says, that, like, either you can have this belief system that constructs meaning, or you can't have anyone else, <coughs> which is not true.
2: Yeah, okay, so... But, I mean, anyone could make Pascal's argument and just apply it to a different religion. I right, that that so... Doesn't, that, really that doesn't get down to the... The Pascal but it's the Pascal as argument, argument for atheism. Yeah. Yeah. The entire god, thing of though.
4: atheism is you do not believe that is that you do not believe there is a god. So there is no argument out there that is going to make you stop and think. Huh? What will be more beneficial for me to believe there is a god or not to believe there but is a god? Maybe I will change my view because if you are an atheist, you do not believe in God.
0: But people do change their views. I mean, that's life. Is that you change your mind about stuff? And so, to kind of reverse Descartes, some of you, I think, were, at least um, in ways we were speaking last time, and maybe the way in ways we were speaking at the beginning of class today, you were saying that um, you don't know for sure that you can rely on logic. Um, that is, that things that seem um, logically certain, like if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Um, that can be, you know, ninety nine point nine 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 percent clear and obvious and true, but there's still a one in a hundred trillion chance that you've misthought it somehow, that there's some glitch in your thinking that makes it seem self-evident, but it turns out to be false. Um, we do make logical mistakes. Um, we are tricked by logical puzzles. You've all been, or some of you have been shown, um, proofs that one equals zero. And they can be hard to figure out what's wrong with those proofs. So you, so your, your belief in your own ability to see the simplest inference, like I think, therefore I am, which is Descartes' inference, um, and which is a tautology. Do people know what the word tautology means? Logical truth something that is true um, simply by its statement. Um, A tautology is simply, yeah, we talked about this, is simply saying the same thing um, in two different ways. Um, You could say, I think, therefore I am is a tautology because the way we would say it in English, you can't say it this way in French, you can't say it this way in Latin, which are the two ways that Descartes said it, but English shows you um, capacities for meaning that um, French and Latin only have latent within them I think can be translated into I am thinking. And if you say I am thinking, then it's a tautology that you will also say I am because you are saying I am thinking, which contains within it I am. So that seems um, true, and as they say about tautologies, trivially true that I am thinking means that (laughs) I am. But there's a vanishingly small but real chance that even that thought contains a basic logical error within it. The odds are low, but not zilch. And the way you can know that is you can think of times in dreams where you have believed that 2 plus 2 equals 5, or the equivalent to 2 plus 2 equals 5. That you had to wait for someone 20 minutes in your dream, and then 3 minutes went by, and you knew that they were going to be there 2 minutes from now. You know, that's something we dream, right? Where, where we do addition in our dream. And if you wake up and remember the dream, your addition was wrong. It was a simple addition, but you were, but it was wrong. Um, these things happen. <clears throat> if life is a dream, it could be happening in our dream. Um, Abby, then Kenny. You, Abby. All
3: right, Kenny. Um, actually, a really funny example of this happened to me recently. Um, I, I, was, I was talking to my roommate, and I was, I was telling him, you were talking in your sleep last night. And so I'm saying you were talking in your sleep and the words you were saying was for, were forming a two-dimensional grid in the wait a second. Yes. And, and I realized only as I was telling him that the words he was speaking formed a two-dimensional grid in the air in front of him. Yes. <laughs> that I realized that in fact he was not talking in his sleep, but that I imagined the whole thing in my sleep. Yeah, that's great.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah. And it's the sheer obviousness of stuff in dreams that, in that is completely incoherent <laughs> when you wake up.
3: Yeah. The whole yeah. Place is totally <laughs>
0: Luca, were you going to say something?
3: No. I mean, all I was going to say was uh, when you were saying, I am thinking, you know, therefore I must exist, that, <laughs> that <laughs> just as <laughs> Pascal's... Wait, say it louder so they'll, wow. so you'll
0: overwhelm their side conversation. Nah, it's fine. No, no. That was, that was a way of telling them to listen to you. Say it.
3: Okay. So I was just going to say, before when you were talking about I am thinking, therefore I am um just as pascal's argument can be kind of changed to other things that can also be changed to other things so you can say i am dancing therefore i must exist yeah but, but there's there no <laughs> against that. yeah
0: because you don't know that you're dancing right, right. yeah
3: okay you're saying that the argument might be wrong because our logic is wrong and the tautology isn't a yeah
0: Well, what it's saying essentially, okay, so if you think of this now, put this together with what Augustine says about sentences, um, that is that the sentence takes on its meaning at, that, that sentence has a kind of coherence within it. So that a sentence means something, even though it unfolds over time, um, we nevertheless um, can compress that time into an idealized point. So if I say um, to use, well, it's actually a sentence William James uses as as his illustrative sentence for just these issues, and you'll see why. William James is the great psychologist and philosopher. Um, His example sentence is, I am the same I that I was yesterday. And um, you can understand what that means, whether you agree with it or not. And he almost certainly doesn't. You can understand what it means. I am the same I that I was yesterday. And um, what he says is, when you understand what it means, it's as though a kind of wave of meaning that's, passed through th- that's been passing through the sentence as you hear it or say it or repeat it to yourself, a kind of wave of meaning that's passing through it, like a mouse through a python, um, gets to the end. And when it gets to the end, it's as though the whole thing just just compresses at the end, and voila, meaning. So let's, let's you may be skeptical of that, but let's take that as at least a reasonable approximation that when I, when I say I think, therefore I am, when I think the thought, I think, therefore I am. While thinking that thought, I am. It doesn't mean I existed before I thought that thought. It doesn't mean I'll exist after I think that thought. But at the moment of thinking that thought, I am entitled to think that I exist. So
3: it isn't, like the second you say, I think, you're already saying there's an I without making an argument for being like,
0: Well, okay, so what if you turned it into there is thinking, therefore there is something?
3: Well, then, yeah, but then you're not saying that there's an I, you're saying that there's
0: something. Yeah, okay, but then the question is, um, you, you know, um, how do you know there's thinking? I mean, the, po- the point is that what Descartes is doing is using the very idea of skepticism against itself. So what he's saying is you, can't, you can dream anything without that thing existing. But the fact that you're dreaming it is required for you to be dreaming it. And so I can't know. This is actually very important for Descartes. And as you'll see, it's important for Lem and for Neuromancer, for The Matrix, for that matter, um, which is swiped wholesale from Neuromancer, um, that um, I can't know that any of you are thinking, in fact, from your papers, I might be, well, I can't know that any of you are thinking
3: Wait, it's a terrible thing to say. Why would you say that? I didn't say anything. I just
0: said, well, from your papers, and then I interrupted myself. Just because he said
2: that doesn't mean I can know that he's thinking. Yeah,
0: exactly. But no one can know that anyone else is thinking.
2: The uh, phrase, well, has the phrase, all your papers, achieved meaning
0: yet? <laughs> Good question. Well, you saw where it was going. That would be Augustine's point. Okay, so you, no single person here can know that anyone else in the room is thinking um, or that anyone else in the world is thinking. Um, This is called other mind skepticism. The only person you can know is thinking is yourself. So to say there is thinking, for that to be self-evident, there's only one way that the self-evident truth of the statement, there is thinking, could be self-evident. And that's if there's a self to which it's evident. Um, And... That self is the one thinking that thought, so so you could if you want to tease it out it's the thinker of this thought is thinking this thought is the tautology, but that may not be true because you could say you know the the, um, um, the rider of the bike is right the rider of the bike through this room is riding the bike, and that's not so. there is no rider of a bike in this room, and therefore there is no, there is no one riding a bike, so to make the thinker of this thought is thinking a thought into something true, which it is, it has to be the case that thinking the thought and asserting something about the thought are the same thing, which they are when you talk about thought and which they aren't when you talk about anything else. I mean, they are when I say I assert such and such. Then by saying I assert it, you're asserting it. But there are things that are self-referential that way And they always require that the utterer and the, um, that the utterance refers to the utterer. And it can refer to it simply by using the pronoun I, or it can refer to it through this philosophical um, detour, but that could be a definition of the I, that you could say we define a mind as what makes it true that the thinker of a thought is thinking that thought. And, um, the only time I know that that's true must be what defines me as me rather than anyone else um we're going to talk a little bit about yeah uh, may even be worth talking about it now, but no we'll do it we'll do it next time, but think about whether you would so you know how Star Trek transporters work How they work How they work they yeah
3: separate all the.
0: Do you know what you do on the TV show? Okay, so you get into a transporter. You get, you say, Scotty, beam me up or Scotty, beam me down. You get into a transporter. Um, you turn into a kind of strange energy with, with sound effects. You disappear from the transporter pod. You appear on the surface of the planet. Um, so cool, you don't have to worry about getting... Getting shuttle sick as you go up and down. You're just beamed from one place to another, right? So everyone, you you're all in some way or other familiar with this from Star Trek. No, not at all. All right. Well, it's it.
4: <laughs>
0: yeah, they use it in space. Okay, so you understand the principle. So um, if you read the Star Trek books. Um, they make some effort, be, partly because they have, to, they have to explain things that go wrong with transporters, like the mirror image Kirk, who's evil, and the mirror image Spock, who's, who's emotional, and so on, <laughs> that what happens is people get transported, but the transporter beam hits a force field and, um, around the planet and gets bounced back, and um, mirror Spock appears, and mirror Kirk appears. Uh, mirror Spock is kind of like Mitt Romney, just <laughs> changing um, into his reverse, and always half his own size. <laughs> the way you are in a mirror. Um, so, um, but they have to, in the, in, the, in the TV shows and the movies, they don't have to explain this. It's, oh, yeah, science fiction. But in the books, it's, oh, yeah, science fiction. We have to explain this. Um, so what they explain is that the way transporters work, more or less, is a transporter is like a fax. What it does is it scans you, scans where every atom in your body is, sends that information, to the surface of a planet or to wherever you're being transported. And that information then allows you to be reconstructed there with every atom, with similar atoms, placed in exactly the same configuration as they were where you are. So the way the CIA faxes top-secret materials, so there are documents that there can only be one copy of. Um, But the CIA wants to fax these documents because it's a real pain, to um, give them to Ben Affleck to go on his motorcycle and go racing um, through street after street and road after road and so on. They would just rather fax it to the White House. Um, So so they have machines, I am told, um, tell no one though. They have fax machines which are fax machines slash shredders. So what happens is you put the document into the fax and as it's being faxed, it's being shredded also and that way it's appearing, the same document is appearing on another fax machine somewhere else, but at any one point, only one document exists. So the first half gets shredded here as as the first half is appearing there. By the time the last bit of the document goes through the shredder, the last bit of the document is coming out of the fax machine on the other side. So think of a transporter that way. There's ink on a document here, and... The same ink, the same configuration of ink in the same shape on paper of the same size appears elsewhere. So that's, you know, transporters are basically three-dimensional fax machines. Um, Very complicated, but same deal. So you get into a transporter here. You are disintegrated into a pile of energy, which just dissipates into nothingness um, or into ashes or something. But meantime, you get put together exactly as you are elsewhere. That's how transporters work. Now that you know, would you ever get into one? Yeah.
2: No. no. Really, guys? Mm-hmm. I would. I mean, it's
3: not no. you.
0: Crazy. All right, so think about whether you. I had this conversation earlier this
3: year. I'd teleport. You didn't. Yeah. Was that movie with the magicians.
0: Yeah, there's um, with the, uh, prestige? the Prestige, yeah. Yeah, but it's not that's on science fiction. That's 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 uh, artifice. I have a question though. How come the surface of the planet doesn't need a teleport receiving apparatus? Because it's science fiction. Okay, that's the answer to everything. <laughs> it's the answer to what needs explaining, and the answer to what doesn't need explaining.
3: Almost as out as
2: magic.
0: Yeah. Um, all right. So the thinking thing that knows its thinking. That, you could say, is a definition of a first-person experience. To know that you're thinking as you're thinking, to be able to guarantee the truth of the thought that something is thinking. For the thought that something is thinking to guarantee its own truth, that thought has to be a first-person thought, a first-person experience. Can't be faked. you know, actors fake things on stage. Olivier, when he was playing um, Oedipus and had to blind himself in Oedipus, at, um, I guess he blinds himself at the, at the end of Oedipus Rex, um, Olivier played that, and what he would think about um, in order to get a sufficiently blood, blood-curdling scream as he blinded itself himself in order to get a scream of horror, um, what he actually thought about were how seals, how seals were caught in the Arctic with salted ice. Um, And he would evoke that image in himself of their tongues um, freezing to blocks of ice, Um, and then they couldn't move until they were clubbed and killed. And he would then scream as he thought about that on stage. So you thought he was screaming over the fact that he was blinding himself, but he was actually screaming about these seals. Um, So you don't know what an actor is thinking on stage. An actor might be playing... Yeah, that's right. But an actor may um, be thinking, um, I sure am looking forward to the end of this evening's performance so that I can go have a drink. But that actor may be playing Rene Descartes and may be saying, I think, therefore I am. So you don't know that about someone else, what they're actually thinking and if they're thinking that thought. Um, There are actors who act in languages they don't know. Um, who act phonetically, um, very famously the Russian version of King Lear, which is a great, 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 great movie. The actor who played Lear in that movie um, knew no Russian. Um, he was a Georgian, and he spoke Georgian, but not Russian. Was
4: in Dracula, he did it phonetically.
0: Yeah, and that's right, and so did Peter Lorre in the first The Man Who Knew Too Much. So the, even the fact that they're saying stuff doesn't mean that they know what they're saying. So imagine that someone is playing Descartes, but knows no Latin, um, and goes on stage, because this is being done um, for a Latin class, and says, cogito ergo sum. Um, And you can say, oh, that's so cool. It's true, if I think I know that I am. But that actor won't be thinking that thought. He'll just be saying those sounds. Um, Those those sounds rather than those. Yay, good. Rather than those syllables. Um, so that idea then that if you simply, uh, that, that it is part of thinking to be first person, that's the definition of thinking is that um, the only thought you can know for sure is happening is your own. And therefore, if you have the thought I think, therefore I am, and you know you have that thought, It's self-ratifying, but only for yourself. That seems like a tautology. Um, Now, what um, Amanda is saying is, if you know you're an atheist, then Pascal's argument is not going to work for you because what being an atheist means is you're saying there's a zero chance that God exists. Um, But none of us believes in a zero chance of anything. There is nothing that would be so... Surprising that we would deny that it was happening with absolute serenity. How do you know this? Because in your dreams, you will believe the most impossible things. Like Alice, you will believe, or whoever tells Alice to do it, you will believe um, six impossible things before breakfast. Every night in our dreams, we believe impossible. I forget who it was now. Sorry? I just wrote that bit I
3: forget who it was now.
0: Yeah. Um, but it is from Alice in Wonderland. Um, or through the looking, glass. Oh, it's from the looking Glass. Through the Looking Glass. I, I yeah.
3: I think it might
0: have been the White Queen. <laughs> I
3: think it. Sorry, you don't
0: think. It might have been Humpty Dumpty. It might be Humpty Dumpty. It's not the Mad Hatter. Oh. Um, so we do believe impossible things. Eight or nine impossible things, if we have eight or nine dreams before we wake up for breakfast, we do believe impossible things all the time. So. Um, the only thing that we would the only way you could prove that you believed something had a 0% chance of happening is that if it happened you couldn't even admit it into your mind that it might have happened Um, you might think it's very unlikely to happen one in a million chance like the Red Sox losing in 2011 yeah, yeah, exactly but for there to be a 0% chance of happening would mean that if it happened, you couldn't even understand what someone was telling you when they said it happened.
3: Yeah? I mean, if that were the case, then there could be things that we couldn't conceive of happening, mm-hmm. happening all the time, and we're simply unable to process the fact that they're yeah. happening at all.
0: Yes. Yeah. Like, for example, that um, George Washington, or actually Ted, um, not Ted, um, JFK, because this is what Weekly World News used to say, that JFK has actually become a huge giant in the sky who's moving stars and planets around in Ptolemaic cycles, um, and that's why we think that the Earth is moving around the sun, but it's actually JFK who's just moving things around in the large paper mache universe where we exist in Ptolemaic cycles. Um, yeah, could, it could be, but you understood what I said, you know, more or less. Why would he have
2: told us to go to space if that was his plan all along? Uh, um, in order to fool us. But the point is, is if you can give... Because he knew he'd film it before, in, in, an <laughs> LA, in an L.A. basement. <laughs> if there's
0: any... If you can understand something, it can happen. Let's, we, we can stipulate that. Yeah, Joy.
1: Yeah. In the, like they, um, in the water, they couldn't they didn't like, see
0: it because they didn't know what it would be. Right. Yeah. 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 Um as you'll see, this is something that will come up in Neuromancer because um there's a thought that winter Mute can't have. That's one of the really interesting, maybe Gibson's most interesting idea in Neuromancer. So hang on to that. Are we doing Sorry? No, we're doing this, the LEM story that Neuromancer kind of comes out of. Um, Luca. Uh,
3: I was just thinking, are we going to talk about game theory today? Yes, we
0: are in just okay. a minute. Um, Abby. Abby.
1: Yeah. And the rest of them are like physicists and astronomers, and whatever. They all are totally logical. They think about it, think about it for hours, and in the end, they're like, "Okay, yeah, you must be right. Must be supernatural." And the one is like, "He's just lying." Yeah. But that didn't even occur.
0: Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, no. No. That's that's actually a, a huge part of political discourse when people. I mean, this happens all the time. You know, it's just so amazing that. Lincoln and Kennedy were both killed on Fridays, and Lincoln had a secretary named Kennedy, and Kennedy had a secretary named Lincoln, and Lincoln was elected in 1860, and Kennedy was elected in 1960, and they both had trouble with the South, and ooh, uncanny. And yeah, no, it's more likely to be a coincidence, but what happens is if you pile up coincidences, people will say, well, that's really unlikely, I believe the much more unlikely explanation, which is that something supernatural happened. That's human nature, is that we're pretty good at seeing how unlikely certain things are and therefore rejecting those unlikely things and therefore accepting a far more unlikely explanation. And that, that's, that's the argument against thinking that, that's the argument against design. That is what, what creationists say is, God, what are the odds that we could evolve um, must be God. And what the atheists, or almost atheists, say is God is a more unlikely explanation than evolution. However unlikely you think evolution is, God is even more unlikely. Yeah?
2: But it almost connects to the, the 50%, 50% probability thing we were talking about that if something's so unlikely to occur, um, because of our conception of the situation, we think that it's either not supernatural involvement or, nat- or normal situation, at, or no, not supernatural involvement or nat- supernatural involvement, and if it's not supernatural involvement, then the likely thing has to occur. And because the likely thing isn't occurring, it
0: yeah, it, yeah, it's, it's like what Peirce says about cutting the cards. That's right. Because we do tend to start out with a heuristic where before we think about it, we say it's either one or the other then we analyze one really carefully and we say that's really unlikely and then we're really tempted partly because it spares us having to think anymore we've been thinking hard and that's a pain thought is irksome as A.E. Hausman said Um, we've been thinking really hard that's a pain in the head Um, so now we just say can't be that must be the other that's where my money goes Um, but Pascal is basically saying if there's any if you to, I mean, this is all to, to, to um, respond to Amanda. If you can understand the idea of God on the simplest level, the simplest level, not, oh, God, I understand him, nirvana. But, okay, yeah, there's a big God up in the sky who's ruling the universe. If you can understand that idea, it means you don't attribute a 0% probability to his existence because, if you did, because that would mean just those words would have no meaning for you, Whatever. No no ghost of a meaning, no apparent meaning, no surface of a meaning. So if you understand the idea of God, it means there's some finite chance that he exists, that you're, you believe there's some finite chance that he exists. What's that finite chance? Fine, let it be one in a hundred billion trillion. Um, let it be tinier still than that. One in Googleplex squared, one in grams number. Let it be amazingly tiny, the possibility that he exists. Okay, so those of you who are betting on the election, which I'm sure you're not because it's illegal, um, but those of you who are betting on the election, if you think that there is um, a 25% chance that Scott Brown will be be re-elected and a 75% chance that Elizabeth Warren will be elected, which is what the polls seem to be saying more or less, and someone said... Um, I'll give you 10 to 1, or 100 to 1 odds that um, Warren will be elected. You, can, you bet on Brown, I'll bet on Warren. Um, you bet a dollar, if you win, I owe you 100. Um, and if you lose, you owe me a dollar. So even if you think there's only a one in four chance that Brown will win, you would be stupid not to take that bet because you would have a one in four chance of winning $100 while, lo- while risking only one. So your expected, do people know this term, expected utility or expected value? Your expected value on that bet is $25. Yeah. So now he says, what's your expected value in betting on God? and he's not going to tell you what it is forget the 50-50 possibility which is which is a um a red herring but the all he wants to say is the expected value is clearly greater to bet that god exists than not if god has infinite reward and infinite punishment in his power and if that's what he's going to give so Maybe there's only a 1 in a trillion chance that God exists. But you have a but if you buy a ticket for God's existence at $10, you have a trillion to 1 chance of losing $10. But the expected value of that $10, if you get infinite reward, what's the expected value of your ticket? If your reward is infinite if God exists. Infinite expected value, even if you're almost sure to lose. Nevertheless, if you, had, if you were born in 10 trillion universes and in each one you spent $10 on, on betting that God existed and God only existed in one of those universes, you would have spent a total of $100 trillion, but you would have gotten infinity back for that. And so it's insane not to bet on God's existence no matter how small the odds that he exists are as long as the reward in this lottery is infinite. But if that's not enough for you, there's also what you're risking. So it's a one in 10 trillion chance that you will um, go to James Joyce's hell for eternity. But... How much are you paying to avoid that? You're just buying insurance by believing in God. And you're avoiding an infinite gulf, even if the odds are really, really low that it'll happen, you're avoiding an infinite gulf. And so, of course, you should buy that $10 ticket that God exists. And if you say, but it's not $10, you know, it's, it's whatever you're going to make in your lifetime, $3 million and lots of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, Still cheap, if you think about it. Yeah?
4: Can you just say that God approves of people gaming the system, though? Yeah, right. I mean, well, if you're choosing to believe in him just because of a potential payoff at the end, and if he knows all, then wouldn't he know that you're only choosing this because you God want her to be rewarded? See, that's another one that truly chants
2: that her conception of the nature of God is right.
0: Yeah, not, okay, so that's a good point. But one thing you can say about it is, well, the Bible seems to be offering rewards and punishment. The reason we know about heaven and hell, or have been told about heaven and hell, is that um, various prophets and um, Jesus and various other people themselves have said, if you believe in me, you'll have eternal life, and if you don't, you'll go to hell forever. So there does seem to be a system of bribing, if you want to call it that, Mm -hmm. and a carrot stick system already in place. It's not as you might, um, as, as, as other um, religions have said, good people are saved and they don't have to believe. And in fact, um, if you're saved on the basis of belief, that may show you're not a good person. But in this case, that's what the, the system itself is giving you, the, giving you those odds. It's saying you're being told the odds. You're not simply being evaluated without having any idea that you were being evaluated. You're being told the odds to begin with. Yeah.
3: Um,
2: if, but if, for example, you bought another $10 ticket for a different god, that yeah. would also have some sort of eternal afterlife. Yeah, I mean, would the first one say you know like after you died if it turned out to be true? Would the first one say no? You bought that other ticket too. Yeah, so yeah, no, go to hell.
0: That's fine. Pascal will 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 do that. And what you could say is let's say there are two religions and one says yeah, that's, that's everyone
2: the ticket you bought is the going to put you the hell in a different religion.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So everyone says, um, believe on me and forsake all other gods. One religion says believe in me. God of the mountain, and forsake all other gods, and you will get infinite reward. But if you do, do not believe in me, the God of the mountain, you will be infinitely punished. And then on your other shoulder is another little god who says, believe in me, God of the river. If you believe in me and forsake all other gods, you will get infinite reward. But if you don't believe in me, you will be infinitely punished. So now you ha- you there's only one bet that you can make according to both of these gods, you can only bet on one of them. However, it seems clear, again from Pascal's um, analysis, that you had better bet on one rather than betting on zero. You may pick the wrong one, and that'll be too bad, but if you don't bet at all, it'll be worse. Your odds are lower of a good outcome if you don't believe in either of them than if you pick one, even if you pick wrong. Um, you know, someone says, uh, you're in a burning building and there are two doors to get out of this burning building, and, uh, or there are two doors, one leads to safety and the other, um, you just get locked in a closet. Do you just say, well, I'm not gonna take either door? No, um, you have to take one. You only have a chance to open one, so you hope you open the right one. You hope you believe in the right God. All right, yeah, go.
2: That's not the situation because the other option is that, or there's no fire at all. Yeah. Exactly.
0: Yeah, but there's a because there is a chance that there's a fire.
2: There is, and but I think what.
0: And we don't know. Leave this
2: room right one now. Of point, in, point yeah. in the paper is that um, I think we struggle to understand the infinite, but we also struggle to understand nothingness yeah. almost more than that. Yeah. And I think that in the third case. Or, in the case that there is no God, or if we're talking about two gods, the third case that there are neither a right and neither exists—that if you spend your life believing something that isn't true, and then only to find nothingness, which is almost, in, which is in another infinite force argument, because there's an infinite difference between existence and non-existence, then you're you're screwed the other way. That yeah. I think if that if you use if you apply Pascal
3: Pascal's yeah. argument. Yeah.
2: It's all you could almost apply it to saying, you better believe in the non-existence because otherwise you might waste an infinitely larger existence just to. But lose. it's not
0: infinitely larger; it's finitely larger. I understand what but you're by saying. By
2: existing, it has a, a non. It's infinitely a non-finite difference from if,
0: zero. Yes. If you multiply, not if you add. Didn't
3: that Sam. Better. I was just—I kind of have the same point where um, they're both—they're both just one experience. One of them is just infinite, and one of them is like you could say finite. But uh, if you look at both of them, they're both still just one experience. And if you—if uh, you go for the, the finite experience, if you um, or your life, you and you believe, choose to not take the wager, and you leave like sex, drugs, and rock and roll and all that and you have a really great Legal model. drugs, by the way. Uh, I mean. all right. <laughs> um, then and, and you're like totally, like your net utility is like you end up, you're very happy with yourself. Then isn't that, if you have a very happy like that one experience, Yeah. Couldn't, isn't that, couldn't you kind of compare that to like being of the same value as if uh, you did have the internet game, Well, but, but you. one experience that you end with
0: like. I understand, you know. what, yeah. So what you might have to say, we're, we're going to turn to something else in a second. Uh, what you might have to say, though, is that your experience would have to be infinitely good now f- for the loss that... Um, uh, for, for you not to be willing to lose it. And given the fact that we spend huge amounts of our time doing stuff we don't want to do, um, you would say that you know practically every second of your life is an infinite loss if on that analysis. Um... <laughs> And, and we just don't feel that way. I mean, you know, every, there, Walter Pater, the great um, 19th century aesthetic, philosopher, aesthetic critic Walter Pater, um, has a great line in the conclusion of one of his books where he says, not to be every instant apprehending um, some subtlety in things, some change in things, is on this short day of sun and frost to sleep before evening. So Pater makes a huge demand on you to make your life full, which is that any moment that your life isn't um, being lived at its absolute peak, it is a kind of infinite loss. But I think most people don't feel that way. I think we're much more frightened of giving up infinite happiness um, after death and being sent to infinite hell forever which is the most frightening thing, which is why to segue into Joyce, that's what Joyce, um, what Father Arnell is talking about, um, that it just doesn't compare to, um, okay, I'm not going to have a third brownie for dessert tonight. Um, (gasps) Infinite loss. I could have had a third brownie, and now that brownie is gone forever. Um, We just don't make those kinds of comparisons, but your good idea would commit you to that, that, that any kind of self-denial at all would be an infinite loss. Um, and that's just not the way we think. Now, what to... It doesn't, make it, not true, it doesn't make it not true, but it's not, but it's, except that it's our own desire that we're evaluating, and no one feels it as an infinite loss, whereas we are, fe- we are worried about an infinite loss after we die. Okay, here's a quick answer to Pascal, maybe. It's not a full answer, but it's a quick answer. Um, I heard from God yesterday, and he told me that anyone in this class who doesn't give me $10 in the next five minutes is going to hell forever. <laughs> um, now, do you think I did, that I heard that? No. But I might have, because you understood what I said. So there's some chance. And um, do you think you'll go to hell if you don't give me $10 in the next five minutes?
3: It would be a difference
0: there's a chance that you will because God really might have told me that and he might have meant it. So I really think that if you do the cost-benefit analysis,
2: fork it over. Um, I, just God, exactly. back, so. I just heard from God, too, he said to give $10 back. Sorry? I just heard from God, he said you have to let us keep our money.
0: Yeah, so basically you can get anyone to do anything if you fix the stakes um, that way. So that's a... Um, a, a moral argument against um, tyranny, because a tyrant can always say, God told me this. And then you actually do have to show some courage against tyranny by saying, even if there's you know, a tiny chance that you're right, um, I'm going to show the courage to resist what you say.
3: Um, Chris Fitchin's, um said of, of uh, Pascal's argument um, he said, I, I believe the phrase was religious hucksterism of the worst kind.
0: Yeah, um, yes.
3: And perhaps he's not giving Pascal enough credit for his intellectual yeah. achievements. But,
0: he's, he's not, but still. Yeah. Um,
1: he also said that whether or not you later on the belief of God doesn't actually change whether he exists
0: or not. So there's... Well, but it, cha- it changes yeah. whether you believe.
1: Pl-
2: And like misplacing where his actual argument lies, yeah. and that's whether you should believe in God, yeah. or not he actually exists. Right, exactly. And it's not whether you should; it's whether it's beneficial. He, yeah. he doesn't care whether you should at all. That's not what he's saying. He's saying yeah. that it might help you in this life. You should because you live a better life. Well, that, yeah. So if the question be is beneficial.
0: that may be why he has to go to the second argument because he may have seen just these issues and needed to back needed to supplement it and to backstop it. Okay. Joyce for one minute. So here's what happens in Port of the Artist as a Young Man as you will all now remember because you finished reading it even if you hadn't before um, and read the parts that you'd skimmed. Um, it's a, that section of the book is really important because it is part of what it means for Stephen to be an artist that he responds to that to Father Arnell's sermon. And what that sermon does is it has a stronger effect on his imagination than any of his schoolmates, than anyone else. There's a later scene where we see Father Arnell drinking and just being, you know, a normal person. And it becomes clear that he doesn't take to heart the very thing that has scared the daylights out of Stephen Dedalus. And Stephen Dedalus outgrows it but he outgrows it by following his imagination in a different direction. What the sermon does is it essentially gets him to think about infinity, think about eternity, think with incredible intensity about what intense thinking is like, but then bring that into a different direction. So what you can see happening there is the way that sort of thought can bring you, can prepare you for a parallel but different sort of thought, which is the thought that turns Stephen into an artist or into a writer. Instead of a priest, he becomes a writer. But he becomes a writer because he's made aware of the astonishing powers and intensity of the imagination. Okay, game theory. Did everyone understand prisoner's dilemma? Yeah. Everyone understand prisoner's dilemma? <laughs> um, who did? Okay, um were other people baffled or just um what's up with us? The latter. The um Okay, so do you guys know the TV game show Golden Balls? Um there's an American version of it called um, Friend or Foe. So I think what I'm going to do next class is show you a couple of episodes. Um, what it is, and then we'll... Then we'll um, I'll show you a couple of episodes. This will take 10 or 15 minutes. I was going to do it today, but uh, we talked about Pascal. Go figure. Um, what it is is um, Prisoner's Dilemma turned into a really pretty intense game show. Um, and... Um, and, and it is really pretty neat. And after you see Friend or Foe or Golden Balls, you will understand Prisoner's Dilemma and um, just what the stakes in Prisoner's Dilemma are and how people have to think about what other people are thinking about, what they're thinking about. So the same thing you did with figuring out the 70% of what everyone else was going to guess, knowing that they were going to guess... Um, 70% of what everyone else was going to guess, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Same thing happens in Prisoner's Dilemma. By the way, I need to tell you that I was wrong about the right number because I didn't do the 70% of the final answer. Um, So did anyone have close to about 20? Uh, What did you have? Do you remember? 19, what did you have? 20. And who else's hand was up? What did you have? 23. 23. All right, Luca gets a dollar because I'm a trusting person,
3: I believe you. Thank you.
0: Um, so, but again, it's the reason he said 20 was that he more or less figured that most people would say, what, 28?
3: I mean, I didn't calculate it out. Or 29. I just realized that, you know, some people then not everyone would go all the way right. to the bottom.
0: Right, so you were thinking about what other people were thinking about, what other people were thinking about, et cetera. Um, okay, so see you Wednesday. Read the LEM story. I think you'll really like it, and um, thank you for your paper. Thank you. I had two doctors'
2: appointments this weekend. How are you doing? doing all right.
3: They got me on a sleep aid because it.